Hey, everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and, of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, I am your host, Katie Morton, licensed marriage and family therapist. Uh, I've been on YouTube for over eight and a half years creating mental health content or educational mental health content, I should say. Um, and yeah, if you're new here, welcome. Um, I answer your questions. I, I, you ask me anything and I answer it. Um, if you're wondering where to ask your questions, you can put them in the, we have another YouTube channel for our podcasts and they are, the channel is called Opinions That Don't Matter. And you can hop over there and in the community tab on Mondays, I will ask you for your questions. I know this week is a little bit different because you're watching this, but I am on vacation. Yay! Um, Sean and I are going into the desert uh, in Palm Springs just for a break, you know, because I've been writing my book about trauma. And usually we take a vacation after VidCon every year um, just to like reboot, recharge, all of that stuff. But uh, that didn't happen because COVID. So we are just taking a little vacation now. Um yeah, and I need it. So I'm excited. And don't don't be afraid to take care of yourself, you guys. Even if you just do a staycation where you don't do any work and you stay at home, that's fine. You're not doing any work. You're getting a break. And I think that that's really important. So I recorded two the week before we left. Yay! So this is actually, I'm being I'm recording this on a Thursday, like the week before. I'm so ahead of schedule. Um, anyway, enough about me, enough about what's going on with me. Um, I have a, how many questions? We have 12 questions today. So we'll get through those. Um, and if any of you are curious about my next book on trauma, it will be coming out, I assume, next fall. If I hear differently, I'll let you know. I know that my editor had said something about because of COVID, maybe we'd want to get it out sooner rather than later. Um, my manuscript is not due until December 1st. However, I think I'm a little bit ahead of schedule. I just never know how long chapters are going to take me. Some of them are, are simple and they take like, you know, five days, six days. But some of them I have to read about, research about more. Um, and so they take me, a, you know, a lot longer, quite a few weeks. So anyway, it's going to be about 15 chapters long. They're not crazy long chapters. Do not worry. Um, this isn't like, you know, book seven of Harry Potter or anything. But um, but yeah, I'll, I should be done with that. I have three chapters left, you guys. I'm excited. So anyway, it'll be nice to get that off of my plate. Also to get it out into the world. I hope it's not a turd. I hope that you guys like it. <laughs> it's always hard writing something because you spend all this time in your head doing, you know, trying to make sense of so that everybody else understands it. It's tricky. Okay. Again, enough about me. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get into your questions because that's why you're here. Question number one. Hey, Katie, is it weird that I would secretly really like to be diagnosed with something? I've been struggling mentally for about eight months now, 
And the first time I went to a doctor six months ago, he said I was quote unquote fine and to come back if I didn't get if it didn't get any better. Well, I keep asking my parents, but they don't seem too fussed. The only reason I would like a diagnosis is so that I can actually put a label on what I'm feeling. Totally understand. For example, I, uh, to say to a friend, I'm struggling with DPDR without feeling guilty. Uh, DPDR is a depersonalization, derealization. Thanks so much for your podcast and channel. It's really helped. I'm so glad. Yay. Um, no, it's not weird to uh, secretly, quote unquote, secretly really like to be diagnosed with something. I would even say not even secretly. You just want to have a, a name to put to what's going on. Having a diagnosis can be validating and also allow us to read up and understand what's happening. Otherwise, we just are trying to make sense of of a bunch of different symptoms that feel like they might not be related, which in turn can make us feel like we're crazy for feeling the way that we feel and not knowing and, well, am I just making this up? Um, And I talk about this a little bit in an older video of mine about my thoughts about self-diagnosis. And it it kind of, it's the answer to this question as well, which is while, I mean, not that you're talking about diagnosing yourself. I don't want you to think that I'm assuming that, but there's a reason that we uh, feel like we need a diagnosis or that we would like to have one is because it gives us a name and symptoms and research we can do and workbooks we can purchase. It it empowers us, right? It's it's information that we can use to better help ourselves. Um, Not to mention a lot of people who just feel like maybe they're making it up or maybe uh, everybody else feels this way and we just don't like it and what's wrong with me kind of thing. And if we have a name for it, if we have a diagnosis to put to it, then we're like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not making this up. You know, um, that's just something that goes on that I don't, that, that is my depression or that is my anxiety. We, when we have a name for it, then it feels real. And then we feel validated and empowered to, to work on it and get better. And um, I could probably talk about this for a long time, but I really think that's just, at the, that's the root of it. That's the crux of this is like, it's very normal to want this. And to be truthful, if your parents don't seem too fussed, I would, I don't know how it works where you are, because in the States, you don't have to go to a regular doctor to get a referral. You can just start seeing a therapist or you can make an appointment to see a psychiatrist, which is a, a medical doctor for your brain, essentially. Um, and they can help you like get diagnosed, get medication if you want, or possibly refer you to a therapist. Um, know that when you see a psychiatrist, even though they'll push medication, they'll be like, okay, well, I can write you a prescription for a blah, blah. You can always just say, no, I'm not interested in medication if you're not. Um, especially with DPDR, I'm not, I do not know of, and this, I'm not a physician, so check with your doctor, but I do not know of any medications that are, that have an indication, meaning that they have been tested to treat DPDR. Um, I'm not aware of any. If you are, let me know in those comments because I would love to learn more. But I, in my recollection, I don't think I've ever had any patients. Um, usually it's like an SSRI or SNRI, otherwise known as an antidepressant, that, there's, uh, di- that their doctors give them. But that's not actually indicated for DPDR. It's just, you know, depression, anxiety, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I, this is very, very common. I would t- keep pushing your uh, parents to get you in if you have to. Um, or just try to make an appointment with a, a therapist or a psychiatrist on your own and then ask your parents to take you. Again, I'm not sure how it works where you are, um, but that's what I would try to do. Also, because of the coronavirus, one random silver lining is that there are a ton of therapists who are offering online treatment now, which makes it easier to get in. 
and to be seen because we can do it from our home. And there's resources like Talkspace, BetterHelp, and then for emergency uh, crisis counselors, meaning not licensed professionals, we can utilize crisis text line. And I know a lot of people have like, I didn't like that one, or I tried it and it wasn't helpful or whatever. I'm just giving you options of resources. You have to pick what's best for you. There's also seven cups, which I think has peer support and then also license support you can pay for. Um, I know people have had good and bad you know, um, experiences there as well, but that doesn't mean that it won't help you. So anyway, those are just some resources. Reach out, speak up, because we should get an answer for you. You, you have some symptoms. You have something that's bothering you. Um, my guess would be you think it's DPDR. That's why you put that in the question. Um, but a, a regular doctor, in my experience, is not going to know. They're not going to have the ability to diagnose you with that. Sure, they could try. Or if you told them you thought, they'd be like, yeah, sure, I agree with you. But they're not. They don't learn about that. They're not educated in what that is or how to know it's happening or to notice when people's eyes wander off or, you know, they they're, they worry about physical health and then you need to see a mental health specialist like a psychiatrist, a therapist, um, stuff like that. But yeah, you're normal. Don't worry. Everybody wants to know. We just need to have answers. It's like if think of it in relation to physical health. If any of you are out there listening or like, you know, I don't really know what the big deal is. Why would you care if you're diagnosed with depression or not? You still have those symptoms. It'd be like if you go to the doctor and you have this stuffy nose. I hate this stuffy nose and it won't go away. And I've had it for a long time and I never have a stuffy nose. This is so not like me. I don't like it. I'm uncomfortable. It's bothering me. I'm constantly sniffing. Ugh. And you go to the doctor and they're like, oh, you're fine. And you're like, no, I'm not fine. Something's wrong. And then you go back to the doctor and this other doctor's like, no, I think you're fine. Don't worry about it. Take a, here's a decongestant. Hopefully it makes it feel better. And then finally, you see an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And they're like, oh, you know what? You have an infection here. Um, you know, I don't even know. I'm not a doctor. So make up some infection name. Let me give you this prescription and this also. And I need you to do this nasal spray. Um, and come back in two weeks and let me know. And boom, it goes away. And you have a name for it. You're like, I had that infection. And I knew something was wrong. But these other doctors didn't see. Mental health is just the same. You go in to see a doctor, you're fine. No, I know I'm not fine. I know me. Me doesn't feel like this normally. I need you to tell me what it is. Um, and then then we can treat it, right? If we don't know what it is, we can't treat it and research it and all that jazz. So anyway, okay, enough about this. Let's go on to number two. Question number two is, Katie, I see my therapist once a week, but after each session, I find myself already longing for the next session because it feels so nice to talk to her. The six days in between appointments feels like forever. Is it a sign of good therapy or an unhealthy attachment? Does it mean I should ask for more support? What do you recommend I do in between sessions to keep myself from feeling this way? I love this question. And a lot of the comments on this were very on point. I love that our community is so, you guys just, you're so good. You know so much. Um, the truth is that it's, we don't know. It could be unhealthy or it could be then a sign that you need more therapy. Okay. So the way that we kind of tell is, do we feel like the time in between our sessions is just unmanageable? Meaning the symptoms just get so bad. I just have a really tough time. It has nothing to do with your therapist. It's the fact that your functionality just isn't there. You're not able to do what you need to do. Um, there's just too much to talk about in 50 minute sessions once a week. I barely get started and then the session's over. Is that how we feel? Do we feel like we're not really making progress in therapy? We're just like treading water, like barely keeping our head above what, you know, above the water. Those are all signs that we need more support. 
So maybe rewind back and listen to those symptoms or signs again, because that's when we would say say to our therapist, you know, I really would like to have two sessions a week because I feel um, like I'm barely holding it together in between seeing you and 50 minutes just isn't enough. Like there's so much I want to cover. We barely get into it. And then the session's over, you know, things like that. However, if this upset or angst or I don't know, I, I guess discontent is coming out of the fact that you don't get to see your therapist as much, meaning I want to tell her about everything. I want her to be with me around everything. I wish I could just talk to her every day to tell her what happened because I just need to talk to her. I need that connection. She's the only one that understands me. She's the only one in my life that's given me some support and all that stuff. If that's where it's coming from, then it could be a sign of unhealthy attachment. And it would be something that I would bring up in therapy. Either way, we need to bring it up in therapy. But when it comes to that, it's more, it's it's less to do with your actual treatment, meaning like the level of treatment you're getting, and it's more to do with how you were raised, um, the maybe the fact that you never had a, a good parent or caregiver or someone who actually cared about you and, and listened and validated you, all the things that we all need, that true connection you never really got. And so now that we have it with a therapist, it's kind of confusing and it's muddied and it's mixed up with the parent that we wish we had or or the, the way we wish um, our family had treated us, all of that stuff. That's when it's more attachment-based and it can get kind of tied into that. And it's something that then you'd have to work on because really... All attachment issues, I believe, come out of some form of trauma. Even if the trauma is I didn't get the emotional support I wanted or my family was just never around, so it was like neglectful, right? Um, And then there's also physical, sexual, and emotional abuse where we're like shouted at or neglect. Emotional, like neglectful behavior is also abuse. I don't want you to think that I'm calling it something different. I'm just telling you then there's the traditional things that we think about when we think about abuse, Um, I believe that that's usually where attachment issues come out of. Um, so I think that, you know, talk, think about it for yourself and talk about it in therapy and figure out where it's coming from. Because together with your therapist, you should be able to tease out whether this is something to do with, ooh, sorry, ooh, my eye, something was in my eyeball. Um, whether this is something to do with your therapist and your connection with your therapist and attachment stuff, or it's, I need more support. Either way, there's nothing wrong with either of those things. There's no right or wrong way to be. We just need to figure out what's causing this so that then we can, you know, properly treat it, talk about it, deal with it, all that good stuff. Okay, question number three. Katie, in what way are therapists, quote unquote, responsible for you if you commit suicide or homicide? How can they investigate how much you told your therapist about your plans? This is very interesting and I... I'm going to do my best to recall my law and ethics, my professor, she's probably like listening right now thinking, Katie, you better not fuck this up because law and ethics, she used to, (laughs) she used to always say, consult, 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 document, document, document. Like you can't, we call it CYA, cover your ass. You can't cover your ass enough as a therapist. And the way that we're legally bound. Okay. So the responsibility, when you're a patient in therapy, I'm going to start here because I think this will be clear. When you're a patient in therapy, you hold your own confidentiality, meaning As a therapist, I cannot tell someone about what's happening in therapy without your written consent. Okay, just want you to hear that. Although there are a few times when I may be legally bound to break that confidence. Okay, and those times are if I suspect abuse, child abuse, 
dependent adult abuse, elder abuse, I'm going to have to report that to whatever governing body like CPS would be child protective services in the States, or at least in California. Um, you know, and there's elder abuse hotlines. There's, I'd have to report one of those things, right? Then there's the Tarasoff. And if you guys want to look up Tarasoff, it's just, I think it's T-A-R-A-S-O-F-F. You can look up the case file. So there was this, um, I forget her name, was it Tanya Tarasoff or Tatiana Tarasoff? Anyway, this woman was killed by a man who told his therapist that he had the plan and the means and was going to leave his session and go kill this woman, his ex-girlfriend, I think, or ex-wife or something. Um, And the therapist at the time, because there was no law saying that he could break confidentiality, didn't tell anybody and this woman died. And it was horrible and it's tragic. And now there is this law where if if you as a patient tell me that you're going to kill someone, like you're homicidal, and I believe the threat is imminent, that's a big if, right? If I think that the, something is really at risk, I am legally bound to notify the victims in any way I possibly can and the police and stuff. So we're supposed to try to make contact, try to do my best to stop it from happening, okay? And that goes for suicide as well. If I think that you are a danger to yourself, this is like the 5150 option also, like danger to self or others, suicidal or homicidal, then I can um, force you into a hospital on a 72-hour hold. Now, we've talked about this in the past. 5150s tend to be more traumatic and upsetting. With homicidal, it's a little different. I've never had to do that, knock on wood. None of my patients have been homicidal before. But, and I believe that 5150 is probably, or calling the police, anything to keep people safe is great. But when it comes to suicidal thoughts, 5150 tends to be, make things worse. It's, I don't, sure, it may keep you safe in that little period of time, but I, I find the, the ripple effects, you, I've heard from so many of you, how upsetting being 5150 is and how that makes it, you feel worse afterwards. So it's not actually benefiting anything, if that makes sense. I think it's, it's actually untherapeutic or non-therapeutic. Um, so anyways, so I am responsible to do my best. So if I, so when it comes to homicide, that's the thing. It's like the Tarasoff 5150. Sorry, my nose is really, really itching here. So if, if I, um, you know, if I think someone's a risk to themselves or someone else, I can 5150 them or... When it comes to homicide, I can, um, you know, under the Tarasoft law, I can uh, contact authorities and the person that you might be hurting. And then when it comes to suicidal thoughts, if I, if I feel that you have the plan, you have the means and the threat is imminent, um, I think that's it. I think those are the three main things. There might be one more, but I, it just flew, flew out of my mind. Um, then I put in uh, I put in place usually a safety plan. I have my patients sign like a no harm contract and, and I check in with them to every 24 hours. So we start from the least invasive, least confidence breaking and we move towards more. So it'll start between me and my patient checking in all the time, making sure they're okay, doing no, no harm contracts, safety plans, things like that. Then if it continues and I'm really worried about them, um, then I'm, I may require that we do not only phone calls, but I also need some numbers, which I'd already have these, by the way, because I make everybody fill this out when they come in to see me. Um, numbers of, of people, I need roommates, parents, whoever you live with, best friends, stuff like that. Um, and I'll contact them. And usually, I always ask my patient if I can. I've never not been able to do this. Um, ask my patient first, but I'll ask them, is it okay if I call them? Because I need to make sure that they're checking in on you as well. Um, and so we have another outside person who's helping us ensure your safety. And then if that continues, then we might be forced to take other measures like a 
or other action, I guess, like 5150, um, that's really the next step. So we try to go from least invasive to most invasive. Knock on wood, in my private practice, I've never had a 5150 someone. And I know people out there um, have had thoughts about like, well, if you told someone that they could 5150, like the whole Eugenia Cooney uh, extravaganza, um, that's not my patient. And I can tell people what the options are. And I can say, you know, if, if that's the case, because I'm only hearing this story from one point of view, if that's the case, then that might that sounds like that might be your option. Here's the things you can do. That is not my patient. That is not my treatment plan. I'm not a part of that. I didn't make any decisions. I didn't even know about that. Like I'm not involved with that person at all. I'm just hearing one person's perspective. So when it comes to my practice, I would be working with my patient. I would know, like a lot of times my patients just have suicidal thoughts and, and they, uh, you know, hoard things so that they can have resources to take their own life, even though I know that they're not going to do it. But um you just try to not have to do the 5150 because I don't think it's that great. Um, so that's kind of the responsibility. So then to end on, I want to end on the fact that if, let's say one of my patients does take their own life and I didn't take any steps to protect them, um, I could, if my notes don't have any indication of the fact that they told me they were suicidal and everyone in their life is like totally shocked by the fact that they took their own life, um, I could potentially be off the hook legally. However, um, you know, therapists, that's why a lot of people get 5150 is because their therapist and their treatment team is scared that they're going to take their own life. And then if we didn't take action, we're in trouble. And so it's this weird push pull, like I could lose my license, right? I could, uh, I could be, my license could be suspended. It could, I could lose my license. So essentially lose my ability to, to make a living, have a job, right? There could be, uh, complaints filed against me, which go on public record. Um, there's a lot of different things that could take place. And so we don't want, as therapists, we don't want that to happen. So a lot of people err on the side of, oh, 5150, just to be safe, just do that. And I know it's risky for me to not be that way, but I just never, I don't know. I just, I just trust in my patients. I trust in the relationship and I trust that I know that they would tell me and that we're working together. And, you know, um, that's why I've never had to do it in my private practice. Knock on wood. Oh my God. Um, but that's where the responsibility comes in. And so, you know, I may have to report that or may have to do that because I have to keep you safe um, or other people safe. And how can they investigate? How much do you told therapists about your plans? I can be, um, and laws change, you guys, and laws are different to state to state, uh, you know, country to country. However, in California, when I was in school and like, as far as I, I think last year, I took a law and ethics course again uh, in my CEUs, my continued education units. Um, but I can get a court order and be compelled to share stuff. However, therapists do have the ability to like just share what they feel is pertinent to the case and keep it as like the scope is so limited. Um, I've never had a... I've never had a colleague of mine have to share much more than like the bare, bare minimum. Like, uh, I don't know, let's say that someone had, you had taken some, you had killed someone else. And then you came in, you're like, they've, they never, there's never any indication that they were homicidal. If so, I would have told someone. The only thing that ever said is that person was annoying to them. You know, you'd share just within the scope of the questions um, and keep it very limited. However, it does get tricky and you end up having to share more when your patient themselves 
uh, brings you in as one of their star witnesses in a court case. This could be for divorces. I've had many colleagues of mine. Luckily, I haven't had to again, knock on wood. Uh, but many colleagues of mine have had to be a witness in their own patient's uh, divorce case, like divorce proceedings. Um, and when you do that, you open the floodgates for them to ask your therapist pretty much any and all questions. And because you've signed off <clears throat> to bring us in, we're kind of forced to tell things. And so it's not always good. Um, and I would not want to do that. That would really bother me. Okay. Anyways, that's all. I hope that makes sense. If you have, if you have more questions on the law and ethics of therapy, feel free to ask me. Um, I could definitely do like a longer form video, but it's just kind of, I don't know. Law and ethics are important, super, super important, but also super fucking boring. Um, Cause it's all like, well, here's the case law with that. And here's what we have to do and do, don't do that. And blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of boring. Okay. But you do hold your confidence. If any of you are seeing a therapist, do not worry. They're not going to just tell anybody willy nilly about your stuff. If they do, you can file a complaint and they can lose their license. Um, it's very serious. Okay. Question number four. Hi, Katie. Is it normal to feel abandoned or rejected when your therapist has to cancel a session? Great question. I had a patient recently have this problem. Uh, recently, we had a hurricane in New Jersey and the power was out for days, which is why the session was canceled. Even though I know the cancellation had nothing to do with me, I still feel a sense of rejection. Is this normal? Okay. I've had this happen with patients over the years. I had food poisoning once, um, or the stomach flu. I never went to the doctor. I was just sick for like a couple of days throwing up and everything. It was bad. And so I couldn't go to the office. Like what am I going to be like, excuse me, I'm going to have to get out of here. I'll be right back. That's not going to work. Um, also, what if I get you sick? So, um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's very normal. And it really has more to do. It's less to do with our therapist and them canceling a session. It's more to do with our own sense of self and confidence and uh, essentially like positive regard for who we are. And so if anybody, we're very sensitive at that point to any kind of rejection, which can also come out of um, ADHD and um, anxiety. I find my patients with ADHD and anxiety have this extreme uh, sensitivity to any form of rejection. And I believe it just comes out of our, our lack of self-confidence. If we think about it, anxiety is this like constant worry. A lot of times we worry, am I in someone's way? Am I upsetting someone? We can feel like we don't have a right to take up space. And then when it comes to ADHD, a lot of times we feel like, hey, I'm just stupid and lazy. I don't know why I don't get this the way other people do, right? We can have a lot of these, these false beliefs. I want you to hear that false beliefs about ourselves and our situation and our environment and what people think. Um, and so, of course, if our therapist, the one person we've reached out to to get help and support cancels a session and we can't see them, we feel like maybe we've done something wrong. We feel rejected uh, and it's upsetting. And so I really don't think it has as much to do with the cancellation and the therapist and more to do with our inability to manage any feeling of I'm not enough or I'm not important enough and that sense of rejection that we feel. Um, and it also makes me suspicious because I feel like by um, don't be suspicious, don't be suspicious. I can't help that. It makes me think of, um, if you guys don't know, that's a song on TikTok. I haven't even done a TikTok because I have a feeling it's not going to be accessible in the States here for much longer. Um, so anyway, when it comes to the uh, the rejection, I think that we are probably looking 
for evidence to support that false belief that we aren't good enough and that people are always going to leave us and that we're lazy or stupid or whatever all those, uh, you know, false beliefs or thoughts are. We're looking for evidence to support it. And then when we get that evidence, even though it's not evidence, right, this, you know, it had nothing to do with you. We're unable to tease that out and be like, hey, it was because there was a hurricane and the power was out. We're not able to see that. All we see and feel is rejection and more support for that negative way that we think about ourselves. Um, So yes, it's very normal to feel abandoned. It has a lot to do, like I said, with our sense of self and ours uh, could be anxiety, could be ADHD, could be just um, we talk to ourselves in a shitty way. But then the abandonment comes out of that attachment. And it's kind of back to what I talked about. Was that the first question? Um, No, the second question um, that I answered about like, your therapist, uh, wanting to see your therapist more. And a lot of times if we've had any kind of trauma or upset or just lack of a, an adult figure in our life who's consistent and helpful and loving and compassionate and supportive, if we don't get that and then we get it in therapy, it can really muddy things up and make us think that this is my savior. My therapist is that parent that I've always wanted. And, um, and then if we don't get to see them one week, we're like, oh, it's just like I thought it was. It's just like it was when I was a kid. I'm not important enough. They don't want to be around me. And we go, we spiral into that dark place. And so what I would really do is bring this up in therapy. Talk to your therapist about this. Say, I understand, like, just like you said it to me, a lot of times when you guys are like, how do I tell my therapist about this? Just the same way you meant, you like commented it and wrote it out for me. Say, There's no difference, you guys. I'm a therapist too. I would want all my patients to tell things to me like, Tell me their issues just straight up. And so tell, you know, tell your therapist, hey, I felt abandoned and rejected when you had to cancel that session. I know there was a hurricane, the power was out. But I want to dig into that because that it, I don't like feeling that way and I'm not sure where it came from. And then just be curious about it. No judgments. We all have weird ways that we jump to conclusions. We make assumptions. We think we can read minds. We all do that. And unfortunately, all of that is like to our own detriment, Right. We do that and then we feel worse. So it's like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but we can't help it. It's like automatic. And so we need to figure out why it's automatic, when we started doing it, why we're doing it, and how we can make it go away. So you got this. I believe in you. Bring it up in therapy. Talk to your therapist about it. Okay, are we ready? Question number five. Hey, Katie, I have been diagnosed with GAD for a while. GAD stands for Generalized Anxiety Disorder, FYI. I have a video about it if you want to learn what it is. Um, Whenever I'm trying to concentrate, whether it's reading something or trying to do school, my brain won't stop thinking about things, which leads to me not being able to focus and potentially panicking or feeling on edge a lot. Is this just my anxiety or could it be something else causing my lack of focus? And then there was a comment onto this as well that said, Katie, maybe you could also talk about whether medication could help improve focus. I'm in therapy, never really considered medication, but my lack of focus is making it impossible to do what I need to do each day. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, Concentration and focus is, I I had a video about this though, it was like the most, the one symptom of depression you didn't know about or something. It's probably called something much better than that because I usually try my best, um, even though my titles and thumbnails are never very good. But it's uh, something like that. And the symptom of depression, and I'm just, I'm t- I know this is anxiety based, but d- just hang in here with me for a minute. One symptom of depression is inability to concentrate. And if you don't realize, if, I, if you haven't heard me say this before, depression and anxiety 
are like first cousins. They're very closely related. They're different families, but they're very closely related. And they also, I believe, I believe it's on the right side of our brain, but they find that I, I want to say it's up over here in our brain. If you're not, if you're listening and not watching, I'm touching the right side, like of my temple slash above my ear um, and that like temporal lobe of my brain. I believe it's on that side that they find depression and anxiety tends to like, for lack of a better term, reside. We don't, it's not as simple and cut and dried as that. But for this answer, let's just keep it that way. Cause I'm not a neuroscientist. And I don't want to accidentally misspeak about parts of our brain and what's happening in there. So, but I believe that that's like where they find, um, you know, lack of dopamine and things like that, that cause the symptoms of depression, and anxiety. So they are first cousins, they're super close, and they tend to kind of toggle between one another, meaning our depressive symptoms can be really, really bad. And we're like, oh, the anxiety's not really bothering me anymore. And then our depression goes down and then our anxiety comes up. And then if we're really lucky, I'm joking, I'm being totally facetious, if we're really unlucky is what I mean. Both of these symptoms happen at the same time. We just want to crawl out of our skin and scream all day long. And we're super irritable. That's when people feel the irritability of depression. Um, and I say that because they are so closely linked and lack of concentration or inability to focus is part of both of these things of depression and anxiety. And people just do not talk about it enough. When it comes to depression, it's we're so clouded with negative thoughts and lack of motivation, feeling uh, like completely lethargic, no energy no enjoyment, um, that nothing sparks our attention. It's really hard. We just kind of want to space out and feel shitty. And that's why a lot of my patients, when they're super depressed, want to play video games, want to watch uh, reruns of on things on television. Sometimes I'll ask what they did. And they're like, I don't even know what I watched. I was just like sitting there kind of watching TV, but we're not present. We're not able to concentrate. We're just in a dark pit. Okay. We feel like shit. Everything's hard and bad. Anxiety, on the other hand, is like an active version of that meaning we have so many thoughts and worries and things swirling around that we can't even focus on one thing. Because while we're trying to read, let's say, let's say I'm trying to re do research for my book or prepare a video or prepare answers to your questions or any of that, I can't even focus enough because all like as I'm reading about, let's say generalized anxiety disorder, I'm like, oh, it's uncontrollable worry. My brain's like squirrel. It like pulls me over into another spot. And it's like, oh my God, remember how you told that one person one time that like, anxiety, you know, I like go into a memory of something I misspoke or missaid and like worry. You're such an idiot, Katie. Why'd you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And oh my God. And then it jumps into another worry and uh, and then another. And especially with the coronavirus, not to like play that card, but you guys, we are all under a lot of stress right now. And if we had any inkling of depression or anxiety or any mental illness, chronic illness, it's exacerbated by what's going on. And so your anxiety is probably already on alert and higher than normal just because of the state of our world right now and how scary and stressful it is. Um, and all the things that we're being told and then not told. And it's just, just so confusing. So I want you to know that, it, yes, it's a component of anxiety because your worry thoughts are what's pulling you away. You said you're not able to focus because your brain still won't stop thinking about things. That's generalized anxiety disorder, uncontrollable worry, right? And no matter how much we try to control it, we aren't able. And so then to finish up with the, the comment on this. Um, oh, and so is it just my anxiety or something else? I am assuming it's your anxiety um, and possibly symptoms of depression too. However, it is important if you are, if this isn't a new thing, if you've like always remembered having trouble focusing, it's always been hard for you to concentrate. Um, it is worth getting assessed 
for things, other learning disabilities and things like ADHD and just things that could be making it difficult for you. Just to ensure that we have the right diagnosis, I think it's always great to rule things out before we hone in on what it is that's really affecting us. Um, but I'd talk to your therapist about it and ask them what they think. Bring this symptom up to them. Um, but then the final component of this, asking about medication can improve it. Yes, medication can. Because if you think about it, like I talk about medication a lot as being like a life raft, right? If we have so many symptoms that we're like drowning in them, right? We're just underwater. We can't, we're like floating away. We can't even, we can't fight to feel better. We can't use our therapeutic tools. We're just, we're just in it. It just is, right? There's nothing we can do. Um, medication gets our head above water. And so by, by the med, like SSRIs, SNRIs, meaning antidepressants or other medication that your physician or psychiatrist, you know, psychiatrist would be my preferred they are a physician, but they specialize in psychotropic medication, meaning they specialize in mental health issues and mental illness. Um, medication could get those symptoms out of there. Those symptoms of depression, anxiety that are robbing us of our focus, all that constant worry that's in the way that we feel like pulls us out and we don't remember what we read or did or anything like that. That the medications could lessen the, those symptoms enough that we are able to focus. And so I would, if I was you, I would make an appointment to be assessed and, and talk to a psychiatrist, knowing farewell that if you, you know, ask them about side effects, ask them about how long you need to be on something and, and how long until you feel better, ask all those questions, write them down. Um, and know that if during that session, you're like, you know what, I just am not comfortable. I just don't think I want medication. That's perfectly fine. It's your treatment. It's your choice. You don't have to take a medication. You can say, you know, I'm not interested. Can I think about it and get back to you? Or you can take the prescription and not fill it. Tell them I have to think about it for a while. Can I let you know if I want to fill this or not? There, you know, be honest with them about where you're at. Um, but know that you don't have to take medication. And medication also isn't a bad thing. I know people want to like, like point it out and be like, this is horrible. You know, you shouldn't do that to your brain and body. Hey, if it makes you feel better, if it gets your head above those symptoms so that you can do the work and start to feel better, that's what it's there for. No one would shit talk you taking an antibiotic for, uh, I don't know, a sinus infection, right? So why are we shit talking people for taking um, an antidepressant to because their depression has gotten so bad? It helps with the symptoms, helps us feel better. It doesn't fix the problem, but it does help with those symptoms and fix that so that we can start doing the real therapeutic work. Um, yeah, I hope that makes sense and hope it's helpful. Yes, lack of focus, lack of concentration is part of uh, depression and anxiety. And I don't think people talk about it enough it, because it's not, you know, everyone's different. Everyone's symptoms are different. And that's kind of why I don't really like the DSM that much. Um, it's helpful. I mean, I've talked about this for years, like how it's not the end all be all. It's a great way place to start. But then we look at things and we can be like, well, hey, concentration isn't actually a symptom checklist in the DSM for GAD. So I think I'm making that up and it's not part of that. No, no, no. Everybody's different. Your worry thoughts, you can't stop thinking about things. Those worry thoughts, hence part of your generalized anxiety disorder, is making it impossible to concentrate. So it is a symptom for you. It is part of your anxiety. Um just because it's not a checkbox doesn't mean that that's not how you experience it. And I think we need to lean more into things being uh, based on our patient's experience, not what the DSM or the ICD-10 or any of those kind of diagnostic manuals or ways we get uh, health insurance to cover. You know, we don't need that shit all the time. Okay. 
That's just just my soapbox, by the way. Okay. And there's a ton of research against the DSM and using it at all. I don't fully go into all that myself, but I do kind of agree with quite a bit of the tenets of their argument against it. Okay. Question number six. Katie, do you think it can be traumatizing to hit a child for discipline? Now, this is a great question. And the short answer is yes. It's not always traumatizing for a child to get hit. For instance, my mom used to spank me with a wooden spoon when I was in trouble and I hated it and I would run from her and she would whack me and she would say, you knew better. Don't do that again. And I would never feared for my safety or my life. Okay. To be traumatized, we have to fear for ours or someone we care about safety or life. And so if your parent is aggressive and hits you um, for discipline, that could be a trauma. Now, I know a lot of people are gonna be like, hitting a child ever is bad. And how dare you condone that? And da, da, da. I'm not a parent. I don't. I know what traumatizing means. I know what it is to be traumatized. You can make whatever decision you want and how you want to discipline your child. I'm just speaking specifically to this question. So don't at me, you know, <laughs> um, if you fear for your life or your safety and those around you or someone you care about, that's when we're traumatized. And I know a lot of parents take discipline to this whole other crazy level. And the funny thing, and the thing that I really want you to hear about this, so the short answer of that is yes, it can be traumatizing. However, all of the research out there, um, I mean, if you want to do some, you want to read some books about parenting and disciplining, the best way to discipline a child is actually through, it's like basic psychological learning techniques. We remove something so they don't get something that they wanted. The timeouts are very effective. And I know as a parent, you're like, I'm angry and they did this horrible thing or they broke that vase my mom gave me and it's it's not replaceable. It's irreplaceable. How dare they? Blah. And we're angry. As a parent, the best thing we can do is to say to our child, that was very upsetting to me. I can't believe you did that. We need to learn our own skills, right? We need to, as parents, we need to like work on our own selves and up our own emotional intelligence and ability to communicate so that our children don't make don't have the same upbringing we did, right? We have to do better, be better. We need to communicate to our child, you know, that was really upsetting. I feel very angry because that was really important to me and you broke it. And so I'm upset. And so I need you to sit here for two minutes. I mean, it's all relative to how old they are, right? Timeouts for little kids is a much shorter time and it feels like forever to them. But if they're older, you know, maybe it's a little bit longer. So I need you to sit there and you don't get to play video games at all this week because I'm upset because you broke this thing and you knew you weren't supposed to play in this room or whatever. We communicate. That doesn't have to involve hitting. And I'm not going to lie. You guys, I remember, okay, this shows you how effective. So I'm sure I got spanked a lot. I don't really remember. My parents were not, you know, they weren't these like, I'm going to talk it out with you type people, but they were, they did their best. I don't, I don't believe that I was ever like spanked and I was traumatized. Like I don't, I honestly can't. I remember times my mom spanked me and I wasn't like scared for my life. I was just like, oh, I got to I don't want to I don't want this is going to hurt. And then I got to run away. Um, but I remember this one time when I was in middle school. So like for those of you who aren't in the States, it's like sixth through eighth grade for me. So you're it's like when you first start like, quote unquote, going out like you hold or at least in my time. I know I'm old now, but like you hold hands with a dude Um or whoever you're wanting to date, you you hold hands and you quote unquote go out, meaning your parents drop you off and you watch a movie together or something at, you know, the theater. Because um, that's how old I am. 
Uh, anyway, during that time, there was a dance at the neighboring school. And that's where my, like, I don't even want to call him boyfriend, but the guy that I was going out with went. And he wanted me to come to like this spring fling formal or something. And so my girlfriend and I, who was also dating a guy from that school, but you can't go to that dance if you're not from that school, by the way. But we snuck in. So they went to the dance. They opened this back door, let us in. We hung out and danced. And then because it's, I grew up in a small town and that next small town is another, like our neighboring town. Like we know as many people over there. People knew who I was. So then they called my mom and she had to come get me because I wasn't supposed to be there. And she picked me and my friend Jamie up and we were in deep shit. But my mom didn't like, I mean, I was a t- I was like, what, 12, 13? Actually, I probably was like 13, I guess, at the time or 14. Anyway, my mom, instead of saying like yelling or getting mad, which my friend Jamie, she's like, my mom would have yelled. Like I guess her parents were much more screamers than mine. My mom was like, you know what? You guys embarrassed me and I'm very disappointed. I want you to think about how that would feel to be me, to have to come and get your child from sneaking in somewhere they know they're not supposed to be and knowing that I was lied to. I mean, she went on this whole thing and I've never felt worse. And I still remember it to this day. So I'm just telling you parents out there, you think that spanking or disciplining in a traditional fashion of like the wooden spoon, like what I got her a belt or parents did all sorts of shit over the years. That doesn't work. What really works is having conversations with your children. I know depending on, you know, developmental, that's why timeouts are great. Taking things away are great. But being able to talk to them about why you're upset and showing some emotional intelligence and explaining why you feel the way you feel to your child helps them not only better understand their own emotions, but it also helps them learn. And it's actually discipline so that they'll do better next time. Because I'll tell you, I never did anything like that again. I was so upset. I felt so bad. Oh my God, the guilt trip of that. So I'm just throwing that out there. But if you look into research, we find that taking things away, timeouts um, is the most effective. And just taking things away can be all sorts of things as your children age, like, you know, they can't have their car or they um, can't have their phone or their video game console or uh, no access to the internet. There's a lot of things we can do. So just think about that. Okay. Question number seven. Hi, Katie. How can I avoid building an unhealthy relationship with my therapist? I decided to try out therapy and I've been pouring my heart out to him. The thing is, I'm afraid of getting too attached to that person and having a hard time trying to get over it when therapy eventually ends. At first, I tried to use formal language to preserve boundaries. I don't mean to giggle at you, but I had a patient that did this and it just reminded me of him. Um, But then I had realized that I couldn't ask, I couldn't use a mask of respectability anymore. Ever since that episode, therapy's become deeper and deeper and therefore it's impossible to keep me distant. He once tried to contact me in the standard manner because of an emergency and I didn't reply. And so he texted me on Facebook later, which was a terrible decision because I've been stalking him on social media. I know I shouldn't do it, but I can't help myself. I'd appreciate it if you'd help me. Thanks from Brazil. And there was follow up in the comments about the reason that the therapist texted on Facebook is because their phone wasn't working and the session was in an hour and it had to be canceled because they couldn't get to the office and everything was shut down or whatever. And so they were just trying to get a hold of them in some way so that they didn't show up and then, you know, not uh, be there. So that that makes sense to me because you just try to get in contact in any way you can. Okay. How to avoid building an unhealthy relationship with your therapist. First of all, all of the stuff that you told me, you need to talk to your therapist about. When we keep secrets from our therapist, and I don't mean secrets like, oh, I'm not ready to share about that horrible thing that happened to me. I don't mean that. I mean, things about therapy specifically are super, super important to bring up in therapy. Like, hey, I didn't like that you used this word. It's very triggering for me. It brings me back to this. 
So I just need to let you know. Hey, when you canceled that session last minute, I felt dejected. I felt rejected. And I just, I felt very abandoned. And I really need to figure out where that came from. So in this case, I really, I worry a lot about building an unhealthy relationship with you. And I'm afraid to get too attached because I know therapy will eventually end. And I just really want to figure out where that fear is coming from. And maybe it's my childhood. Maybe it's just therapy specifically, but I'd like to be able to figure that out. You got to bring it up. My guess is with this, that it's something to do with not having a good male figure in your life. Cause this is a, a man you said, um, excuse me, burping. Um, and I think that's kind of back to the attachment that we talked about earlier. We always have themes every week. And this week, this week is the attachment theme. Um, so that concern about being too attached and then having a hard time when therapy ends is, is a very real thing to talk about. It's something that should always be part of therapy. I don't think I talk about it with all my patients, but any of my patients who've had any attachment issues or talk about trauma in their life, I always bring it up. Um, how therapy would end, how we would communicate things, what it would be like, you know, why they don't need to worry, how I'm always there. I'm not retiring anytime soon. I'm only 36, you know, blah, blah, blah. I got a good 30 years left. Um, anyways, I think that talking about it, because my guess would be this comes from something in your childhood, maybe not feeling like you had a good male figure in your life that you could support you, that heard you, was understanding and caring. Um, all of that could be, could like feed into this worry and this this difficulty. Um, and you don't need to, I know this sounds weird, but as a, as a patient, we don't need to worry as much about boundaries as the therapist does. It's really on the therapist to let patients know when boundaries have been overstepped, what's appropriate and not appropriate in session or outside of session. Um, as a patient, the only thing that we have to do is hear them out when they tell us the boundaries and hold to those, meaning basic things like don't try to call your therapist every day uh, or email them all the time, unless that's something you've already discussed and it's part of like, hey, I'm on a safety plan because I've had suicidal thoughts. I'm, I, I'm supposed to touch base with them every day. Um, or I'm coming up on a big anniversary of a trauma and so we're doing touch, we're touching base this time. But there should be a reason, uh, or I need to change my schedule. I need to, my, my session doesn't, that time doesn't work for me anymore. Um, I used to tell my patients, you can email me. I won't, I'm not going to reply, but I'll bring it up in session. And I can read it. So if there's something you can't say, I'll bring it up there, you know, so I'll print it out and bring it in. And if you're going to call or text me, um, if it's not an emergency, the only other reason would be scheduling. So that's, you know, those are clear cut boundaries. Um, and then as a patient, it's just up to you to follow those and to hear me and to do your best to adhere to them. Um, and if you have questions about them or concerns about those boundaries, you can always bring them up in session and ask about it. And that's totally fine. So I know that's a long-winded answer, but the real answer is just bring this up in therapy, figure out where it's coming from. It's very, very common. I have tons of videos about this because I've had millions of questions over the years about what's normal when it comes to your therapist and the relationship and how attached is too attached and all that stuff. So I have videos about, um, I would encourage you to watch my videos, search Katie Morton transference, um, Katie Morton attached to my therapist. I have videos about being too attached. Why am I so attached? There's probably like six videos in total about those topics. So look those up. I think that will really help and talk to your therapist about it because that will help also. Okay, question number eight. Hi, Katie. I hope you're doing great. I wanted to ask you how to bring the topic of sex to my therapist and how to better deal with it. I was sexually assaulted by my cousin when I was about six for two years. Sex has been an issue ever since for me, more specifically since a few years ago. For example, I never liked for people to trespass my personal space. 
maybe because how now any touch feels like it's something sexual. However, I do want to be able and feel ready to be with someone else in an intimate way. So I want advice on how to better manage um, my deal with being touched or touched or close to someone, specifically when that's something that I want. Overall, I want adv- advice on how to bring this to session. I've tried, but it's been very hard. I'm so sorry if this is confusing or any mistake. Oh, English isn't their first language. Your English is impeccable. It's wonderful. I totally understand. Okay. So uh, it's always hard to bring up things in therapy that we haven't told someone about maybe. I don't know if you've talked about the sexual assault you 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 sustained when you were younger. Um, I would probably start there. I know you're like, oh, that's the thing I don't want to talk about. Oh. You could, if that's too much, then you could start with the touch and how uncomfortable touch is for you and how it always comes across as something sexual. Your therapist, I'm sure, will read between the lines and probably ask questions about your past. Um, It's completely okay if you're not ready to be, uh, to talk about it. You can say, oh, I just, I'm not ready yet, but I did have something happen when I was a younger kid. Um, But that, I would start with the touch maybe. Or to just say there was a trauma when I was younger. Um, my cousin, you know, and I, I don't really want to talk about it right now, but I want, I want to bring it up because it's something I really need to work on. You could write it down and bring it into therapy and just read from it. That helps a lot of my patients because you don't have to make eye contact because you're reading. So it allows you to just like n- almost pretend they're not there. That you're just like reading your journal entry out loud. That can help as well. Um Ask if you can email them. Say there's something I can't really, I'm having a tough time bringing up in therapy. Can I email it to you and you'll bring it up in the next session? See if that's an option. Um, Every therapist is a little bit different around what they'll allow and not allow. And so just ask about it. And then I would encourage you to get, encourage, fun word, the Courage to Heal workbook. I do not know if it comes in Portuguese because I think you said from Brazil. Oh no, that was the one before. Never mind. That was thanks from Brazil, but it said that um, English isn't your first language. So I'm not sure if it's uh, if it is translated into other languages or not, but I would look on, I get it on Amazon, but anywhere books are sold from where you're at. Um, the Courage to Heal workbook is great. And towards the end, I want to say it's like chapter 20 or something. They talk about how to engage in healthy sexual relationships if we've had a past of childhood sexual abuse. Um, and so I think that would really be healing for you. And it's something that I would encourage you once you've gotten this out with your therapist, whether it's through emailing, reading your journal, um, talking about the touch thing first and working your way into it, however you've gotten through to that, I would encourage you to bring that workbook with you and ask your therapist to get one as well and work through it with you. Um, That's really, really helpful. It's super difficult, but powerful and healing. And the person who created it, they themselves were abused, sexually abused as a child. So it really comes out of a place of care love and complete understanding. Obviously, everyone's situation is different. Everyone feels different. Um, but there's something about knowing that that person's been through it too, that just gives us that like level of, of understanding and um, empathy that maybe we wouldn't get from someone who hadn't had that experience himself. And I'm not saying everybody has to only see someone, you know, who's been through something as well. I'm just saying that it does help sometimes And I think that that is a really powerful um, workbook because of that. Um, So yeah, and there's other workbooks around the Courage to Heal workbook. They've created others um, like add-ons and I forget what they're called, but there's other books within that kind of series that they've created 
Um, but I would encourage you to pick that up and check it out because I really think that would be healing. Um, so in summation, because I know I've kind of talked about all sorts of things, start bringing it up in therapy if you can around the, the, the touch thing, saying how uncomfortable you are with touch. You could also write it down and read it. You could ask if you can email. That might be helpful. Uh, pick up the Courage to Heal workbook. That could help as well. Um, and know that it's always uncomfortable. But if you're able to just send them even the message that you sent to me, this comment, um, if they'll allow you to text that or email that, I would do that just so you can get it out there. Because sometimes it's, I feel like the trauma work is sometimes just like ripping a bandaid off when you first say the thing that happened that you're so scared of saying. Then we get we get validated. We're shown compassion and understanding. And then it's not as scary anymore. It's like our brain builds this up that it's going to be so terrible, terrifying. They're going to think it was my fault. I did something to cause this, blah, blah, blah. You know, we have all these weird thoughts that run through our head. And when we prove by sharing that that's not true, ah, we feel so much better. That weight is lifted. We get that uh, understanding we've so wanted and needed for so long. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. I know there's a lot there, but I hope that gets you gets you started. Okay. Okay. On to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. Will dissociation always be part of my life? Great question. Considering that it's a coping skill that I've honed since childhood and that showers... Um, Oh, and that showers is the only grounding technique that works 95% of the time. Bless the water bill, <laughs> which is also not practical. Maybe this coping mechanism is different from self-harm, etc., which feels easier to replace. I've been able to manage any urges and it's no longer a huge part of my life. Or is it something that simply needs more work to undo my brain's automatic pattern? Thank you. This is really, it's funny, not funny, haha, just ironic, because I was just writing a chapter in the book about triggers and how... uh there's this old, uh, I don't even know what you'd call it. It's like a, a principle called Chesterson's Fence. I think I might be saying that wrong, but something like that, Chesterson's Fence. Anyway, um, I could actually pull it up right here because I've got that, uh, my chapter right in front of me. Yeah, Chester Chesterton's, that's what it is. I always want to say Chesterson's, it's Chesterton's. Chesterton's Fence, which is this principle that we can't remove something and we first don't understand why it exists. And I want to apply this to triggers. That's why it's in the book is because I want, I applied it to triggers because oftentimes we just want to get rid of those triggers and our unhealthy coping skills without recognizing why it's happening or what's occurring to cause it, right? Like what purpose is it serving? And once we've worked on, because I believe dissociation will always be part of our life as well as urges to self-injure, eating disorder behaviors, shopping addiction, sex addiction, whatever it is, those will always be part of our lives if we don't heal the root of it. If we don't come to understand the trauma or the upset or the false beliefs or whatever it is that has led to this this thing happening, right? Because dissociation can feel like it comes out of nowhere, but it's always triggered by something. And it could be a buildup of small triggers. It could be one trigger. It could be a lot of different things, right? But it, it pushes us to that point and we dissociate because our brain's like, wow, I can't handle this. Pull the ripcord. Um, and so until we heal the real root of it, if, until we like maybe do EMDR, schema therapy, or we try some form of trauma work, it will always be there because the tra the trauma is still there. The wound is still there. Somebody um, in my Patreon because I've asked people for stories to, so I can add them to the book. And this was such a great quote. I'm going to probably misquote it, but it's something to the effect of like, um, triggers are like scabs over wounds. Um, 
or I guess traumas are like wounds and then these there's scabs over them. And when we're triggered, it's like it scratch, scratches off that scab again and it bleeds all over again. It can feel like it's happening all over again. So until we heal the wounds completely, we could still be dissociated. We could still be triggered. And so I think until we remove the reason your coping mechanisms exist in the first place, they, it will be part of your life. And I'm glad you have grounding techniques. Those are all wonderful tools to manage the triggers. But the real way to stop dissociation or other unhealthy coping skills from existing in our life is to, to work through the trauma and heal it. And that could be a lot of different things, right? It's not just talk therapy. It could be medication. It could be EMDR. It could be um, like I've been looking into alternatives like TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, Stellar ganglion block, uh, SGB. You can look into that. Vagus nerve stimulation. There's a lot of different ways for us to treat it, but we have to treat it in order for that to go away. Um, I hope that that makes sense. That I know that it, and it is going to be our favorite coping skill. When you said you've honed it since childhood, a lot of times dissociation or whatever it is we've been doing for the longest time, um, it's going to be the most comfortable, the, the easiest. It's like our knee jerk reaction, right? But that doesn't mean that we can't find something else that will alleviate some stress and we'll have other healthy coping skills to put in place in the future. But we have to get rid of that trauma and that urge first. Otherwise, it's sometimes just too much, you know, and yes, we can we can replace it. Right? We talk about that five to one, like five healthy coping skills to replace the one unhealthy coping skill. And even then, sometimes it still doesn't quite feel as good. I don't know why that is. But I blame our brain. And over time, I assume it will get easier and better. But we can do that. But it doesn't really get a get uh, rid of the reason we're still gonna have that urge to dissociate or maybe we don't have any control and we just do dissociate but you know what I mean it, we're still it's like if we had a broken leg and we stitched up because let's say the bone came out of the skin let's say we stitched up the skin and you know we put our we were on crutches for a little bit and, and then we're fine and we just go about our day. But nope, oh, the bones come out again. Nope, oh, it's broken still. Yeah, because we never really set it. And so it's like we have to actually set the bone and we have to rehabilitate that leg so that the muscles and everything, you know. And so there's this process to healing from trauma. So often we just put band-aids over open wounds that really required stitches or we uh, stitch up, you know, our leg when it really the bone needs to be set and we need to be rehabilitated. And so I really think that we need to work on that deep problem, the deep pain and shame and embarrassment and hurt from the trauma. And then the dissociation will stop because it's the need isn't there anymore. We don't need it anymore. Okay. Question number 10. Hey, Katie, I told a friend that I struggle with self-harm and an eating disorder. At the moment, things are really bad for me. I often see a person who abused me because of Corona. Ugh, I hate that. He doesn't do anything anymore, but it is triggering. Of course it is. Should I tell my friend what has happened to me so that she can understand why I'm struggling more at the moment? If yes, how do I tell her that I have been abused? Is it okay to talk about? I'm not sure because allowing myself to talk about it and fighting the shame and guilt is so hard, as well as dealing with my own emotions afterwards. Um, again, sorry for bad English. You guys have impeccable English. Um, okay, so to answer these questions, you're, you're in need of support, which is normal. It's a human thing. We all need support. And if you feel like your friend would hear you and be understanding and wouldn't be invalidating or uh, layer on any more shame telling you you made it up or it's not true, I'd hope that this is your friend. I hope your friend is like this. I'm just throwing that out there to make sure before we share something that is so 
uh, what's the word I want to use? It's not just vulnerable, but so painful for us. I feel like we're ripping our chest open and like showing them your pain, right? Um, We want to make sure that we're doing it with the right people. So just checking in to make sure that person is worthy of your trust and your information. Once we have that, it's completely okay to talk about. And yes, I would share this with her. You need someone to understand and support you so that you can talk about why you're having such a shit time. Otherwise, we feel like we're all alone. And then we don't want to tell them and then they don't understand. So then they can't help and they can start to assume things. It's just complicated. It actually makes things worse when we don't clearly communicate what's going on. And so the best way to tell her, it's all about your comfortability. I personally am a verbal diarrhea type of person. So if I start talking, I'm just like, and then this happened and blah, 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 blah. And I tell them everything that happened. Um, however, you can test the waters. You can tell a little bit at a time, like, oh yeah, I have to see this person. They were really hurtful to me when I was a kid. And so it's been really like fucking with my head. You could start that way. Um, you could tell them that, you know, you've been traumatized as a child and it's kind of, you know, the coronavirus has brought that back out. Or you can tell them that, you know, you've had to be around a person who was just super abusive to you. They might not ask for a bunch of details and, you know, and so it's been hard. It's up to you how you want to engage in that. But I would start with like, I've been having a tough time because, you know, uh, things have been a little more difficult. It had to be around a person who was hurtful to me in the past, you know, then they can ask questions. You can answer them as much or as not as like whatever you're comfortable asking or answering, you know, we can kind of engage in that conversation carefully in a way that feels good. And if know that when they're asking questions, if you're not comfortable answering at the time, you can say, I'd love to share it with you. I'm just, I just can't today. Can we talk about it another time? Thank you for asking, by the way. So they know that you, you appreciate them. You want them there. You're just not there yet. Um, also, it can help to write down what you'd want to say. And this is what the normal advice that I give is like keeping these short bullet points of what you want them to know. And also make sure you include a bullet point of how they can help. Friends and family always want to know what they can do to help. So if you just say, you know, I would just, if you could just listen, I don't need any advice. I don't need you to fix it. I just need someone I can talk to about it. That, you know, make sure you put in the ask. Otherwise, people aren't going to know. And then they're going to try to do things that maybe you don't need. But because we haven't communicated, we can't really get upset with them. We have to communicate our needs. People can't read our minds, okay? Um, So go through that bullet-pointed list. Keep it very short and sweet. Practice saying it before you talk to them. And then, you know, do it at your own pace. In a, in a space that feels safe, in a time when you're not supercharged, overwhelmed, whatever. Um Make the time and space for it and then just do it. I, I can't tell you how many messages you guys that I get every week about someone wanting to support someone. How do I best let them know? How do I do this? Everybody wants to care for you, listen to you, support you. You know who those people are in your life. Give them an opportunity to help because they're already asking me how to do it. Okay. Question number 11. Two more questions. It says, hi, Katie. How can I find out what I truly want? Hmm. I always seek my therapist's opinion. She says it's all somewhere inside of me, but I can't see it. I always think other people know better what I need or want. So I don't even give myself the permission to think about what I might want to do. I'm just too scared of other people's opinions. Ooh, people pleasing. It's getting in the way. And now we don't know who we are. Um, it sucks. Trust me. I've been there too. I'm a people pleaser. I've had a tough time with that over the years. Um, You're not going to like this answer, but here's my answer. In order to figure out what you truly want, you have to start working on yourself so that you build up your own sense of self. My guess would be you don't even know who you are because it's all based on what other people tell you. And I've been there. I'm not saying you're worse. I'm better. I'm saying we're all in this. 
This got a lot of likes. People commented. We all have this issue. So my advice would be to start noticing your self-talk. You knew this was coming in some form with some question. We have to notice what we're saying to ourselves. We have to notice um, how nasty that conversation is because my guess is it's like all put downs. You're lazy. You're stupid. You don't know. Um, Or how many times we have an innate feeling like I don't like that person or I don't want to do that or I'm not hungry for that food. We'll take it very simple. I don't want that for lunch. Okay. But instead of speaking up or feeling like we have the ability or the right to have a voice, we give in to other people. We let them say what they want. We do what they want. We go where they want and we spend time with people we don't like um, because we don't want people to feel bad about us. And it's very common, but we have to work on our own talk about things, about like how we talk to ourselves about who we are and what we do. And then like, as we start using bridge statements, if you don't know, I have a whole video about bridge statements, but building from the I'm lazy, stupid, I don't know anything into I'm amazing, productive, wonderful people love me. We have to build these bridges with, you know, it's possible I'm not as stupid as I think it's it's maybe, excuse me, maybe I could, you know, be somewhat something that's important to someone it's possible. We have to start building it over into a more positive space. And I really want you to work on that. And I want you to come up with at least three things every day. I know. Well, I'll give you a break. We'll do five days a week, not weekends. You can get those off. But I want you to come up with three things every day that you enjoy about yourself. That's all. I want you to do that because that's really where it has to start. There is a lot of work when it comes to like our own confidence and sense of self and what we're okay and not okay with and all that jazz. Um, But we have to start with that conversation because um, then there's layers because confidence is where anxiety, lack of confidence is where anxiety comes from. And I think that that's probably what is holding you frozen is you worry about what people think. And so I think that anxiety is that next level. And so um, there are things, you know, you could talk to your therapist about it. <clears throat> like, I think it might be anxiety or my lack of self-confidence. And, and I, you know, I'm going to start trying to talk more nicely to myself. What else should I do? Ask them for more homework. Ask them for more tools. Um, because until we have that better relationship with ourselves, and we're actually able to hear ourselves and we listen, which I know sounds weird. It's not like we're having a crazy conversation with ourselves, but our, we have a lot of beliefs and thoughts and things that we want and don't want. We have boundaries that need to be in place. We are people. We are valued. We have the, the right to take up space. What is it like to listen and understand that and then act out of that instead of looking outwards for someone else to give us permission? I give you full permission to do whatever it is that you really want. You have my permission. You have the universe's permission. We don't have to allow other people to weigh in on our life. I don't ask people for input on things. I don't, you know, I don't want their input on. If I'm going to make my own decision, why am I asking someone else? And I want you to get to that point where you get to make your own decisions. It doesn't matter what other people think. We can never please everyone, okay? And the one person that's the most important for us to please is ourselves. And so start listening to that conversation and making it more positive and you'll build from there. But I'm glad you have a therapist. Keep talking about it because it does get easier and it does get better. Final question. Question number 12 says, hi, Katie, I fear the day the people I care about will pass away. When I think of this, what if I just die before they're gone? It would it wouldn't hurt that much is what I tell myself. I want to stop thinking that way. What should I do? I think part of this fear of losing people that we care about comes 
it's just an anxiety thought. It's part of, it could be part of OCD, but for most of my patients, it's more anxiety driven. So I would, the best advice I have, and this is tricky because I know it's hard, but I want you to make the most about things now. I want you to spend time with them. Every time you have this thought, I want you to thought stop, 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 stop. And I want you to pull your brain into your favorite memory with that person. And then the homework is come up with a way that you can connect with that person this week. Is it a Zoom call? Because I know we're coronavirusing all day, every day. Is it you live with them and maybe you just want to spend more time with them in the kitchen, making dinner or watching TV together or talking about our days? Or is there something that you love doing? Like maybe you go out in the backyard and you'd like to barbecue together or play a game or something. Make time for that. Talk to people. Spend that important time now versus spending your time worrying that maybe they'll die sometime. And then, so that's kind of part of it, right? Then the next would be, I would be curious where this fear is coming from. I would be curious if you have a lot of worry thoughts. And if so, if these worry thoughts happen all the time and they're out of control, I would want you to reach out and see a therapist. And potentially, if it's possible, if you already are seeing a therapist, and you're like, dude, I've been working on this for a year and nothing. Maybe medication would help. This sounds like uncontrollable worry and it sounds very anxiety driven. And so I'd really want you to start working on that, figuring out where that comes from. Maybe that means that um, you know, we challenge some of these thoughts. Like when you have the worry thought, like, oh, they're going to pass away. Maybe what if they die? What if I just die before they're gone? Cause it wouldn't be that bad. I'm like, really? Is that really what you want? You want less time with these people? Um, by taking your own life? Is that, is that what you're trying to get at? Would that be better? I'm curious about that. Okay. Well, if you fear that those people will pass away, what can we do to enjoy the time now? Or do we have any evidence to support the fact that they are going to pass away soon? Is this actually something we need to think about now? Hmm, what good does that do? Does that make us feel better or worse? I have a lot of questions. So I would get in to see someone um, because this this just sounds like anxiety. I think a lot of people who have uh, deeply rooted anxiety have this like fear that people will pass away or that they'll pass away. Um, like thinking about death is just so scary and, you know, it's final, right? And I think that it's it's not something we need to avoid thinking about, but it does it should not take up all of our thoughts and all of our time. And so I would really be curious about this. I would really consider where it's coming from. I would consider action you can take now because a lot of times taking action instead of feeling frozen can like shake it out of us and make us feel a little bit better because the frozen is like hopeless, powerless, and that doesn't help us feel better. Um, But if we can see them, talk to them, tell them how important they are, um, that can make us feel better too. I know that's a lot, but you got this. Start talking about it. Uh, Start seeing someone to figure out the anxiety component of this. Uh, Thought stopping techniques will work. I have some videos about that. Um, Yeah, that's that's what I would do. Because it's not a helpful thought. We've had the thought over and over again. It doesn't get us anywhere. Um, So what's something else we can do instead? What's something else we can think instead? I challenge you to try that out. Okay, I think that's it, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this was helpful. I know it's a lot. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to process. But I hope that it got you off on the right, at least like giving that first step to move towards a better, happier, healthier you. Remember what I used to say? Together, we work towards a healthy mind and a healthy body. And I'll see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always